one of the very earliest accounts, English accounts, of America was written by Thomas Harriet from Roanoke. And that's a very unusual book because Thomas Harriet actually knew coastal Carolina Algonquian and at least uh, one of the Indians who was his guide knew some English. And so that's a book that was written out of an unusual circumstance, but it's virtually the only one. No one else had this kind of linguistic training before they came to America. And so the question was, what do you do when you're trying to communicate with people and you can't talk to them? And the answer is, in this period at least, you sing and sometimes dance and sometimes play instruments. And what what was interesting about this topic to me is that Uh, and was very gratifying to the Europeans, was that the people whom they encountered, not only in America, but in Africa and in Asia as well, had exactly the same strategy. And so often they are greeted by people singing and dancing uh, before they undertake to sing and dance. So this is a kind, it's it's an interesting topic to me because it's one where the expectations of all the people involved seem to converge in an interesting way. And so my argument is that music was, was fundamentally associated with early encounters. And I have uh, uh, one theme, which is that this is a slight byway in the, in the uh, talk, but I think especially for this course, it's an interesting one. In Shakespeare's play, The Tempest, Uh, As you know, the invisible Ariel creates music, and and Ferdinand and his companions can't figure out where it's coming from. And they say, is it in the air? Is it in the earth? And although Shakespeare could not have known this, the Narragansett Indians in New England had exactly such a tradition. They said that they had heard a tune in the air long before they ever saw any Europeans, but that when some of them went to a church service in in Plymouth, they recognized the tune in one of the hymns that the pilgrims were singing. And so they preserved this song, this providential tune, and it was published in the 19th century by a a Narragansett historian. So there's that sort of sense of music in the air without even people being there to produce it uh, exists in in the record as well as in Shakespeare's imagination. But in most cases, it was very clear where the music was coming from. And every European ship carried complements of instruments and made sure that the crews included people who knew how to play them. Here's one example, maybe a slightly extreme example, but nonetheless, when St. Augustine's governor, Pedro Menendez de Aviles, went to dine with with Carlos, the Calusa king, he took with him two fifers and drummers, three trumpeters, one harp, one violin, and one psaltery, and a very small dwarf, a great singer and dancer whom he brought with him, and the, the recorded um, account of the evening was that it included much singing and dancing. And similarly, when Sir Humphrey Gilbert, these are all early 16th century examples, sailed for Newfoundland in the early 1580s, he took a variety of skilled men, mineralogists and people like that, but besides for the solace of our people and allurement of the savages, we were provided of music in good variety not omitting the least toys as Morris dancers, hobby horses, and May-like conceits to delight the savage people whom we intended to win by all fair means possible. So all of the reports certified the enthusiastic reception these musical presentations received and also the ways that the newly encountered people responded. Uh, uh, For example, English and French merchants trying to break into the Portuguese monopoly on trade on the African coast, gave great banquets uh, to the sound of music from violins and other instruments. And one Portuguese reporter said that it was this 
display that had won them a part in that, in that important trade. And one of the first English voyages to the African coast was greeted by song. As they neared the coast, divers of the women to show us pleasure danced and sung after their manner, full ill to our ears. Their song was thus, Sakura, Sakura, ho, ho, Sakura, Sakura, ho, ho. And with these words, they leap and dance and clap their hands. Uh, in Jamestown, the colonists very quickly observed the way in which Indians incorporated music into their own self-presentation. Uh, when they, on the first exploring voyage of the first town they came to, the inhabitants made a doleful noise, laying their faces to the ground, scratching the earth with their nails. But then after dinner, they showed us in welcome their manner of dancing, which was in this fashion. One of the savages, standing in the midst, singing. It's not coming up. The slide isn't coming. Oh, here it is. Okay. This is a painting not from Jamestown, but from Roanoke. This is uh, John White's painting of a religious ceremony, probably the green corn ceremony, uh, which is a harvest festival. Uh, so he says, after dinner they showed us in welcome their manner of dancing, which was in this fashion. One of the savages standing in the midst, singing, beating one hand against another, all the rest dancing about him, shouting, howling, and stamping against the ground with many antique tricks and faces, making noise like so many wolves or devils. One thing of them I observed, and this is where I think the picture really uh, uh, is illustrative, uh, when they were in their dance, they kept stroke with their feet, just one with another. But with their hands, heads, faces, and bodies, every one of them had a several gesture. So they continued for the space of half an hour. Uh, and George, this is, again, another Jamestown example. George Percy, who was the brother and son of the Earl of Northumberland, and therefore a man who knew aristocratic display uh, intimately, described uh, the first meeting with the chief of the Rappahannocks in Virginia. He says, he came playing on a flute made of a reed with a crown of deer's hair colored red in fashion of a rose, fastened about his knot of hair and a great plate of copper on the other side of his head with two long feathers in fashion of a pair of horns placed in the midst of the crown. His ears were all behung with bracelets of pearl. And Percy's conclusion, and again, I think it's important that he is the son of a noble family, he entertained us in so modest a proud fashion as though he had been a prince of civil government. <laughs> Uh, John Smith wrote that if any great commander arrive at the habitation of a werowance, which is a chief, they spread a mat as the Turks do a carpet for him to sit upon. Upon another right opposite they sit themselves, then do all with a tunable voice of shouting, bid him welcome. When they first encountered Poetan, who was the paramount chief uh, in the Chesapeake, and in fact the English always referred to him as an emperor. An emperor is a king who rules over other kings, and Poetan was an emperor. Uh, um, uh, when they first were brought into Poetan's presence, and they, were, they sat down on the mat, and then the English, according to this account, saluted him with silence, sitting still on our mats. Uh, they already knew that the Indian custom was to give a shout, and the English knew perfectly well what giving a shout meant. They say that when Captain Christopher Newport set up a cross and claimed the land for Queen Elizabeth, or I'm sorry, King James, uh, the English all gave a great shout. So then, according to the same report, the next time they were brought into Poetan's presence, their guide, their Indian guide, made sign to us, we must make a shout, which we did. So they, <laughs> they held out for one time, but they couldn't hold out for long. And Smith demonstrated, uh, Smith has claims to be a gentleman. This is Captain John Smith. 
Uh, and he demonstrated both uh, his own musical literacy and the sophistication of American technology when he described their instruments. For their music, they use a thick cane on which they pipe as on a recorder, but their chief instruments are rattles made of small gourds or pumpkin shells. Of these, they have bass, tenor, countertenor, mean, and treble. They, these mingled with their voices, sometimes 20 or 30 together, make such a terrible noise as would rather affright than delight any man. <laughs> so now Captain John Saris's East India Company fleet arrived on the Japanese island of Hirado in 1613, and he invited the dignitaries who greeted him to come aboard his ship where I had prepared a banquet for them and a good consort of music. Soon the daimyo came again and brought four chief women with him. Saris wrote that the women seemed to be somewhat bashful, but the daimyo willed them to be frolic. They sung diverse songs and played upon certain instruments, whereof one did much resemble our lute, being bellied like it, but longer in the neck, and fretted like ours, but had only four gut strings. Their fingering with the left hand like ours, very nimbly, but the right hand striketh with an ivory bone, as we used to play upon a cittern with a quill. They delighted themselves much with their music, keeping the time with their hands, and playing and singing by book, pricked on line and space, resembling much ours here. So playing the lute was a gentleman's accomplishment in the later 16th and early 17th centuries. So uh, like Smith, Saris is, is not only telling us about Japan, but he's also showing that he knows of, about lutes and how they should be played. Uh, they also used uh, music and, and gifts of musical instruments in diplomatic exchange. Uh, England... Tried, with, tried to set up diplomatic relationships with both Morocco. Morocco was the only Muslim country that had remained independent of the Ottoman Empire in this period. And so it, uh, Morocco, and Morocco was uh, anti-Spanish, so a natural ally for England. So the first uh, uh, ambassador was sent to Morocco in 1577. He brought the king of Morocco a great bass lute as his diplomatic gift. And the sultan said, would you please send some musicians from the English court? And, and the English did send musicians. Uh, and then in 1599, uh, Queen Elizabeth was opening diplomatic relations with the Ottoman Empire. And so Thomas Dallum, uh, who was a great organ maker, was sent we created an organ in England, and then uh, it was sent to Istanbul, and he went along with it to set it up and, and teach people uh, in Istanbul how to play it. Uh, this, is, this is a picture of the organ that Thomas Dallum uh, created for the sultan. Uh, and he, his, his account of his time in Istanbul is very interesting. But just I'll just talk about the, the moment when the sultan comes in. It, uh, this is a, uh, he has set it up so that it will play automatically when the sultan enters the room. And the sultan is, he says, very pleased with this. But then he wants to see him play it. And he's, uh, Dalem is very nervous because in order to play the organ, he has to turn his back on the sultan, which he has been told is, a, you know, is something that achieves the death penalty. <laughs> but the sultan says, no, go ahead. And he also is very upset because in, in, in playing it, he, he actually brushed against the sultan's knee with his britches, he says. So, you know, it's a, but in fact, apparently the sultan was delighted with the, both the gift and with Dalem's playing. And uh, it's a, a, another example of how music is so central, and music, exchange of music in all forms is so central to these early diplomatic relationships. I also think I'm going to argue that, um, that music allowed uh, people to be drawn into each other's kind of 
circles. It's, I don't want to go so far as to say cultures, but, but it allowed a kind of cross uh, acceptance that, that you don't often find in other contexts. So for example, uh, this was a, on an early voyage in the first decade of the 17th century to the New England coast conducted by Martin Pring. He says, we had a youth in our company that could play upon a gittern. This is a gittern. <laughs> uh, in whose homely music the Indians took great delight and would give him many things as tobacco, tobacco pipes, snake skins of six foot long, which they use for girdles, fawn skins, and such like, and danced 20 in a ring and the gittern in the midst of them. That is, they danced around this boy from the ship who could play the gittern, uh, using many savage gestures, singing, yo, ya, yo, ya, yo, ya. Him that first broke the ring, the rest would knock and cry out upon. And I'm saying that because he could play, uh, that this youth occupied a kind of position for these Indians that normally another Indian would occupy. Uh, for example, for comparison's sake, this is an account from Henry Spellman, who was an English boy who actually lived with the Indians for several years in Jamestown. And he says, when they meet at feasts or otherwise, they use sports, sports much like to ours here in England as their dancing, which is like our Derbyshire hornpipe, a man first and then a woman, and so through them all, hanging all in a round. There is one which stands in the midst. This is the boy with the gittern. With a pipe and a rattle, which, with which when he begins to make a noise, all the rest gidgets about their, wringing their necks and stamping on the ground. So, so you, I, I'm saying that this, this English boy then occupies a role that, that uh, they incorporate him into their normal um, modus operandi. Uh, another one, Owen Griffin, another ex early expedition to the New England coast, also in the first decade of the 17th century. Uh, uh, they, the English took an Indian man onto their ship, and in exchange, an English man, or a Welsh man named Owen Griffin, agreed to spend the night on the, on the shore with the Indians. And so he first, he says, he witnessed, what does he say, the ceremonies of their idolatry. Uh, he says that the oldest person stood up and looking about, suddenly cried with a loud voice, bow wow. <laughs> then men and women sang and danced. Uh, and this went on, he described this as going on for a long time. But of course, I think it's pretty clear that Ariel's refrain, Bow Wow, in The Tempest, which is, is uh, first performed just a few years after this was published. It seems like it's more than coincidental. Uh, but then these Indians, these Wabnakis, heard the watch on board the English ship singing the hours. And so they turned to Owen Griffin and asked him to sing for them. And he did. He says he held up his hands and sang. And so um, then they pointed to the moon as if they imagined he worshipped that, which when he with signs denied, they pointed to the sun rising, which he likewise disliked, lifting up his hands again. Then they looked about as though they would see what star it might be he was worshipping, laughing one to another. <laughs> Uh, <clears throat> and, and another early uh, encounter, uh, this time in Newfoundland in 1612, uh, as, the, as the English ship was anchored by the shore, uh, a man came forward, an Indian man with a white or light gray deerskin on a stick, and he started shaking the deerskin, and, and according to... Um, the source, he made a loud speech, shaking this, this light gray deerskin on a stick. And so an Englishman, a Mr. Whittington, put, took a white flag and went forth, and he shook it and made a loud speech. And then the Indians, two Indians, approached Mr. Whittington, dancing, leaping, and singing. And so there was an exchange of gifts, as which was a normal thing in these cases. And then... 
hand in hand, they all three did sing and dance. I think the picture of Mr. Whittington and the two Indians dancing, in a, I presume, in a circle uh, is an interesting one. And then another Englishman came forward. More gifts were exchanged. And then all four held hands and danced uh, and sang. Uh, he says, um, making signs of joy and gladness, sometimes striking the breasts of our company and sometimes their own. Uh, then they, other people came forward. They had a big feast. And then at the end of it, one of them picked up one of the empty aqua vitae bottles and blew in it, and it made a sound, <laughs> and he said, which they all fell into a laughter at. Uh, so also, another way in which music is used in these early situations is between people. It can be to diffuse situations even between Europeans or between uh, Indians. So uh, especially in cases where allegiance was unclear, music was a way of indicating who you were. So for example, uh, Sir Francis Drake, as he moved up the uh, coast of Florida to rescue the, the um, Roanoke colony in 1586, uh, he, he stopped long enough to attack and destroy St. Augustine. And, and they knew he was coming, so all the Spanish people had fled, but they had left behind a few prisoners. And one of these prisoners um, came out in a little boat, approached Drake's fleet, playing the Prince of Orange his song on a flute as he approached them in a little boat. So he's saying, essentially, I'm a Protestant. The, the easiest way for him to say, I'm a Protestant, is to play the tune of the Prince of Orange. And, and similarly, then, uh, the next Roanoke colony, uh, John White, who was the governor of the last colony and also the painter who did many of these beautiful paintings, uh, uh, after, uh, I'm having trouble again getting it to go forward. Maybe it's, oh, here we are, okay. Uh, this is John White's painting of the, uh, his map of the Outer Banks of North Carolina. Roanoke is the, uh, the little pink island. If you, uh, you see where there's a, sh a single ship and a little pink island inside. Uh, the colonists had been left there in 1587. Uh, and, and White, although he was the governor, had gone home, leaving behind his daughter and granddaughter, the newborn Virginia Dare. Virginia Dare was John White's granddaughter. And, and various circumstances in Europe, especially the approach of the Spanish Armada in 1588, prevented them from returning and, and resupplying the colony. So White didn't get back until 1590, and, and he was in a single ship at that time. And, and they finally got to the Outer Banks uh, in the evening. It was too late for them to try to disembark and see what they could find. And so according to White, they spent the night, they started with a, a trumpet call and afterwards many familiar English tunes of songs. To, so that if people, if the English were still there, which they, they weren't, but it, it, had the English still been there, they would have known that this was a friendly English ship and would not have been frightened. So again, music is the way you can communicate this. And similarly, uh, um, there are reports of on the, the ships carrying enslaved people from Africa the men and the women were separated, but they would communicate with each other by singing in a call and response pattern as the ships came across the Atlantic. So there's also, I have one, I, I think, very poignant case of Native people from America communicating to each other through song, and that's up in the very far north. This is in the 1570s near... Baffin Bay. This is above the Arctic Circle. Uh, and Sir Humphrey, uh, I'm sorry, Martin Frobisher 
went there three times in search of either A, a passage to Asia, or B, gold. And uh, on the second voyage, they kidnapped some Indian, some Inuk people. First was a, they, they took a young woman who had a baby, and then a few days later they captured a, a man who was not related to her. And so um, uh, there's a very detailed account. They, when they brought the man and the woman together, they were, they were very uh, intent. People crowded into the room to see how they would relate to each other. And, and uh, the account says um, when they were first brought together, they beheld each, each the other very wistly, a good space without speech or word uttered, with great change of color and countenance. And then the woman, Egnok, you can see the baby up in her hood, uh, uh, after this long period where this man and the woman looked at each other, Egnok turned away very suddenly and began to sing as though she minded another matter. But then the man turned her around again, and they, he, uh, according to the uh, account, the man with stern and staid countenance began to tell a long, solemn tale to the woman, whereunto she gave good hearing. Now, modern-day Inuk people say that pihit, that is songs, uh, serve to keep people's minds occupied to divert them from cares or worries and to keep them from being anxious due to burdens of the mind. The, both of them died, the uh, Egnok died before the man. The man's name was Kalakach. Uh, and the accounts, again, uh, of his deathbed are, are really quite moving and interesting. And, and it's also that people seem to want to be there. I mean, there, was a, there were people there who, had, who came in who had also been present when when uh, they departed the uh, American coast, and so they say that as he was dying, uh, he sang clearly that same tune with which the companions from his region and rank had either mourned or ceremonially marked his final departure when they were standing on the shore, according to those who heard them both. So he sang a farewell song as he died that that these people at least claimed they had heard his fellow countrymen singing as the ship pulled away from the American shore. And, and his final words were, God be with you. So early modern Europeans believed that music represented the underlying reality of the universe. And it was not just that music was like the universe. It, it actually represented the universe. Music was a branch of mathematics in this period. And you could understand the universe if you could understand the mathematical relationships in um, music. Harmony in music was reflective of the harmony of nature. And as I've said, knowledge of music and a degree of skill in playing were, were part of a gentleman's uh, accomplishment in this period. So gentlemen learned to play the lute or other stringed instruments. I think brass instruments were déclassé. Gentlemen did not play brass or wind instruments, particularly trumpets and drums. And trumpets and drums, on the other hand, were often used in attack and in war. Uh, and so were presumably the province of rank-and-file practitioners. Uh, a mid-16th century English voyage to the African coast uh, enjoyed a good trading relationship, and at the end, according to the captain, uh, they went ashore with our trumpets and drums and trafficked, that is, traded, and I had the captain of the town to dinner. So there, in trade, you, go, you, you have your trumpets and drums going ahead of you. Uh, uh, but this could also be, I think, trumpets were meant to intimidate as much as to build bridges. So, for
For example, uh, while he was a captive of Poetin, Captain John Smith says that they had this discussion and Poetin told him all about all of the people who lived along the Chesapeake. And then he says, I told Poetin about the territories of Europe and I gave him to understand the noise of trumpets and the terrible manner of fighting. So that's the fighting and the trumpets are, are two sides of the same thing. Uh, and the Venetian envoy in Istanbul disgustedly described English merchants entering the city accompanied by a continual music of trumpets and drums on Good Friday in 1583. And he said that the Muslims abhorred such disrespect to Christianity. And, and I think because of this, especially the association with war and attack, music could be, this kind of music, could be ambiguous uh, and, and, could, and was deliberately meant to be ambiguous in some cases. I mean, for example, Thomas Gates, who was the governor in Jamestown after Smith, uh, uh, says, being desirous for to be revenged upon the Indians at Kikohatan, did go thither by water with a certain number of men, and amongst the rest a taborer, that is a drummer, with him. Being landed, he caused the taborer to play and dance, thereby to allure the Indians to come unto him, the which prevailed, and then, espying a fitting opportunity, fell in upon them. So here music is being used to uh, uh, cover uh, hostile intent. But the Indians could also do that. Um, uh, there's a very early example, Francisco de Oriana, who was floating down the Amazon in the early 1540s, came upon a very large urban center. And, he said, and, and their ships were soon surrounded by 200 boats. And they were, the, the whole thing was very impressive. Some of these boats were so large that they carried 40 men. Uh, and they were very colorfully decorated, and they carried musicians playing many trumpets and drums on pipes, uh, and pipes on which they play with their mouths, and rebecks, which among these people have three strings, and they came on with so much noise and shouting and in such good order that we were astonished. And in, as, the, uh, as the Spanish were astonished, the Indians attacked them. Uh, and so <laughs> they brought out their guns and managed to fend off the Indians, and then um, uh, Frey Gaspar de Carvajal, who wrote the account of this, says uh, that they saw huge squadrons of men on the riverbank who were playing on instruments and dancing about, each man with a pair of palm leaves in his hands, manifesting gr very great joy upon seeing that we were passing beyond their villages. So, you know, the, the singing is also, uh, in this case, uh, celebratory. And again, in Roanoke, the governor, Ralph Lane, there, there, there was an uh, exploring voyage up the Roanoke and Chowan River. And, and they were out of food, desperate to, to get some food from the Indians, and they didn't see any Indians. <laughs> and uh, so uh, they were very pleased when they heard some Indians calling from the riverbank to Mantio, who was the man I mentioned earlier who knew English and worked with Thomas Harriet and John White. Uh, and so Mantio answered them at Lane's um, direction. And, and then the Indians on the riverbank began to sing. And Mantio picked up his gun and said, let's get out of here. You know, so again, I mean, the English were so hopeful in this case because they thought of song as being something that uh, was a friendly overture, and it was not. And they, the English, uh, this is a Jamestown example, also encountered Indians who mocked them in song. This is an Indian song that uh, was recorded by um, the words of which were recorded by uh, William Strachey. And, and this is, a, this is a, a song that the Indians were singing shortly after the capture of an English fort up near the falls of the James. And Strachey explained uh, uh, that the song told of how they killed the English for all our pocket sacks, that is our guns, even though Captain Newport brought them copper. 
and they could hurt Thomas Newport, an English boy who had lived with the Indians, for all his monocoque, that is, his bright sword, and could capture Simon for all his tomahawk, that is, his hatchet. The refrain, hui, hui, was the crying of the English as they were killed, which they mocked us for and cried again to us, ya ha ha, to witawa, to witawa, to witawa. So there's so music is not always such a friendly thing. Uh, now I'm going to change my tack a little bit here, uh, because as of course as time went by, people gained greater facility in each other's languages and were able to talk to each other. But uh, um, I'm arguing that the the emphasis on music did not stop as people learned. Uh, uh, to speak to each other, um, and and this interest in music, I think, became linked in at least in the minds of scholars with interest in in universal languages. One of the things that that many scholars were looking for in the 17th century was a language that could be understood by all people, and 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 hopefully one which, like the language that God taught to Adam, would be true by definition. That is, alphabetic languages such as the ones that we all speak uh, are full of ambiguity. Different words can, can uh, uh, have the same meaning or the same meaning can, can uh, apply in different ways and pronunciation changes and so on. So they're looking for a language that will be true by definition, and and they were very interested in the early 17th century as reports of the Chinese language began to filter into Europe, uh, because China Chinese has you know thousands and thousands and thousands of characters, so it is a universal language in that every character stands for one thing. It's not like you know, English or French or German, where you can have, you know, so much built-in ambiguity. Uh, but, of course, we don't have 30,000 sounds that we can make. So, as Matteo Ricci, the Jesuit who analyzed the Chinese language and whose book was first published in 1615, explained, spoken Chinese is, uh, consists of five tones. So you can render many more uh, characters because each character has can or each each uh, sound can be split into five tones. And so, in this sense, according to what people thought at the time, Chinese spoken Chinese is musical, is a form of music. Uh, and and so they were very interested in in uh, studying Chinese, and this comes to them or comes out in a somewhat unexpected way. Uh, Francis Godwin, who would become a bishop of the Church of England, read, uh, drew on Ricci's account of, the, of his time in China in a book that he wrote called um, The Man in the Moon. And this is uh, his central character. His name is Domingo Gonzalez. And he's also called the Speedy Messenger. So I don't know whether he's Speedy Gonzalez or not. But um, uh, this he he uh, Domingo Gonzalez had devised this spaceship that was powered by swans. And this is a picture of him uh, leaving for the moon in his swan-powered uh, spaceship. And Gonzalez reported in this book that the lunar language, sometimes it's called the lunatic language, but the lunar language was, it consisted entirely of tones, that it was, it, like Chinese, it was a musical language. And, and he says that a small number of words sufficed because they were sung in different tunes and thus were able to convey a wide range of meanings. And he said, although he was no perfect musician, Gonzalez included a few examples of lunar musical notation 
in his book, The Man in the Moon. Uh, so you can see, he says, I discern means of framing a language, and that easy, soon to be learned, as copious as any other in the world, consisting of tunes only. So uh, um, then, by coincidence, uh, as he fell back to, or came back to Earth, uh, Gonzales landed in China. And he was very interested to find out that the language of the Mandarin, he said the language that the ordinary people speak is difficult and, and different. But the language that the Mandarins speak, he said, uh, like that of the Lunars, did consist much of tunes. So this idea that spoken Chinese is actually a form of music uh, is, begins to be established. John Wilkins, who was like Godwin, destined to become a Church of England bishop, wrote a, a book um, called Mercury or the Secret and Swift Messenger. It was all about secret ways to communicate. But in this book, he had a chapter called um, Concerning a Language that May Consist Only of Tunes and Musical Notes Without Any Articulate Sound. Now, this is his... Uh, System And his system actually would not have worked because he wanted to have a, a note for every letter of the alphabet. I mean, you can imagine that that would be very cumbersome. Uh, but he, this is his rendition of uh, the Gloria Dei. Uh, but what he wanted was a system that would be universally intelligible. And this is what, uh, what they were all looking for. So Godwin's book was translated into... French, and its themes were taken up by Cyrano de Bergerac, who uh, um, described a trip to the moon. This, he has a much more sophisticated uh, spaceship. You can see how they're moving ahead with their spaceship design. Um, and he also said that, Chinese, that the lunar people sorry, communicate only in music. And he added a twist to this description, which I think is interesting. He says that um, when they grew tired of singing, a lunar gentleman would take up a lute or some other instrument to express their thoughts. So that sometimes 15 or 20 in a company will handle a point of divinity or discuss the difficulties of a lawsuit in the most harmonious consort that ever tickled the ear. So <laughs> you can see them settling their lawsuit by playing. Uh, and as I said, the uh, European scholars were particularly drawn to uh, Matteo Ricci's uh, report that any person in Asia could read written Chinese, even though they couldn't understand spoken Chinese. And so they're, what they're looking for is this universal language. And the first step to achieving such a language, at least for some people, was to find a good way of recording languages. And uh, here, Thomas Harriet, who I've mentioned, was in Roanoke. Uh, he was a, a really quite eminent uh, Renaissance scientist. You've probably never heard of him because he's never published anything except a brief report of Virginia. And he never published. This is quite a shock because he claimed that in England he didn't dare to publish. So he corresponded with Galileo and Kepler and Tycho Brahe and all the great figures of European science. But he, it was only in the 20th century when people began to study his papers in the British Library that England realized that they had, a, they had one of the great Renaissance scientists, but, but no one had known about it. And, and while he was in uh, Roanoke, he devised this system. Unfortunately, this is the only page that, that remains. Most of it was burned in the Great Fire of London in 1666. But this one page survives, and it's a syllabary. It's a way of... The, it's a way of recording languages by the sound. So you have one sound for each syllable. And that way you can record any language. You don't have to understand it, but you can record what's being said because if you, if you have, because uh, there's a limited number of sounds, I guess, that we can make. 
And so you have one, one emblem for each sound, and then you can record any language. And that would be the first step then to bringing some kind of coherence into all languages. Uh, he called it an universal alphabet containing six and thirty letters whereby may be expressed the lively image of man's voice in what language soever first devised upon occasion to seek for fit letters to express the Virginian speech, 1585. Now Harriet died in 1621, but the interest in his system continued. And, and uh, later in the 17th century, another mathematician, John Pell, saw uh, more than just this of his system. And he said uh, an alphabet that he had contrived for the American language, like devils. I've never understood what like devils means here. If anybody has any ideas, I'd be interested to hear them. And of course, this is a bit of an aside, but probably the most the most successful educational experiment in the history of the world uh, was when the Cherokee Sequoia, who is also uh, known by the name of George Guess, created a syllabary for the Cherokee language. There was no written form of Cherokee. This was in the early 19th century. And the Cherokee nation went from zero literacy which because there hadn't been a, a written language before, to 100% literacy in three years. You know, you could learn the you could learn the system in a week. I mean, think how much better off we would be <laughs> if we could if we could learn to read English through a system like that rather than through the very cumbersome system that we have. Uh, So I'm, I guess I'm arguing that music as a mode of communication and its relationship to spoken language was and continues to be a subject of, of interest to scholars. Darwin argued that music preceded language in communication. That is, music was the first mode of communication and that language came later. Uh, more recently, in his intriguingly titled The Singing Neanderthals, Stephen Mithen argues, following Rousseau, that language and singing both evolved from a common precursor form. He, uh, Mithen, and Oliver Sacks contend that human brains are hardwired for music receptivity uh, as much as for language, and music has the additional effect of triggering an emotional response. Uh, and, and Sachs, actually, in his new book, uh, musicophilia, uh, cites studies showing that people who lack the capacity to speak, either because of aphasia or because of very severe stuttering, can be taught to speak if they first sing what they have to say, and then they can learn to speak through singing what they have to say. So mathematics and music were and are seen as universal uh, systems of signs. In 1977, NASA loaded representations of mathematical relationships and music onto the Voyager spacecrafts, which were sent into outer space on the assumption that intelligent beings anywhere in the universe will be able to understand the music. Uh, in the same year, of course, 1977, Steven Spielberg's film, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, had space beings coming to Earth to try, and I quote, to teach us a basic tonal vocabulary. So it's a, the space beings are trying to give us a syllabary as well. Now, 30 years later, uh, Voyager has left our planetary system and is nearing the heliopause. NASA estimates that it will be 40 years before it actually encounters uh, another planet so that the golden record, we, this is the golden record, uh, and its information can be read. So I, I, if you'll indulge me, I'm going to read what the NASA website says about the golden record. Uh, Pioneers 10 and 11, which preceded Voyager, both carried small metal plaques identifying their time and place of origin for the benefit of any other spacefarers that might find them in the distant future. 
With this example before them, NASA placed a more ambitious message aboard Voyager 1 and 2, a kind of time capsule intended to communicate a story of our world to extraterrestrials. The Voyager message is carried by a phonograph record. It's, I mean, it's already sort of <laughs> pathetically uh, out of date. <laughs> um, a 12-inch gold-plated copper disc containing sounds and images selected to portray the diversity of life and culture on Earth. The contents of the record were selected for NASA by a committee chaired by Carl Sagan of Cornell University. Dr. Sagan and his associates assembled 115 images and a variety of natural sounds, such as those made by surf, wind, and thunder, birds, whales, and other animals. To this, they added musical selections from different cultures and eras, spoken greetings from Earth people, in 55 languages and printed messages from President Carter and UN Gen Secretary General Waldheim. Each record is encased in a protective aluminum jacket together with a cartridge and needle. And you see how the, the diagram shows you how to use the um, needle. And uh, um, the 115 images are encoded in analog form the remainder of the record is in audio designed to be played at 16 and two-thirds revolutions per minute. So I'm not sure how you get 16 and two-thirds revolutions per minute off this diagram, but um, presumably they will know. Uh, <laughs> it contains the spoken greetings beginning with Akkadian, which was spoken 6,000 years ago in Sumer, uh, and ending with Wu, a modern Chinese dialect. Following the section on the sounds of Earth, there is an eclectic 90-minute selection of music, including both Eastern and Western classics and a variety of ethnic music. Uh, Timothy Ferris, who selected the music list, had an op-ed piece in the New York Times last year, which was titled, I believe, The Mixtape of the Gods. And he said in this op-ed piece that he would not change any of his selections. So this is how we're going to be represented by our music to whoever or whatever finds this golden record 40,000 years from now. <laughs>